When I was a teenager, I was friends with this girl, and she was one of my closest friends, and we hung out all the time and just really enjoyed each other's company. And I secretly had a crush on her, but I didn't know how to tell her, so I just kept it inside. I was afraid that if I told her how I really felt, and she didn't feel the same way, then maybe we wouldn't even be able to be friends. So I just kept it inside. And one day I was driving through Wanamaker, Indiana, and I drove past her house. And I went ahead and turned around and came back and I pulled up in her driveway. And I got out and I walked up to the front door and knocked on it. And I stood there for a while and nobody answered. But I heard something in the backyard, so I walked around the back of the house. And they had this really big pasture, big field. And she was sitting on top of a horse and she didn't see me. But the sun was setting behind her and there was a little breeze and it was blowing her long blonde hair. And I just stood there and stared at her. And I just couldn't believe how beautiful she was. So as I stood there just speechless trying to think of something to say, I realized she was reaching into her back pocket and she pulled out a package of something. And she reached in with her right hand and she pulled out a really big wad of chewing tobacco and stuck it in her mouth. And it was at that very moment that I realized that I didn't love her anymore. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville, Tennessee and I have my cat Frankie on my lap and he's just purring away. You might be able to hear him in the background. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. And I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it and everything else is an artificial filter. And this is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Billy Bragg. Billy is a singer-songwriter who lives in the south of England, and you can find out everything you need to know about Billy at billybragg.co.uk. I first met Billy at a homeless shelter in Austin, Texas about eight years ago, and Billy was nice enough to invite me to go on tour with him. And I ended up doing a few tours after that. One of those tours, I spent a month inside a van with Billy. And you learn a lot about somebody when you're in a van with someone for a long period of time. And it's you can't really fake things. You kind of learn who people really are. And Billy was always in a great mood. He was really upbeat. It was obvious that he really loved playing music for people and being able to make a living. And he felt very fortunate to be one of the people who gets to do that. And that's not always the case. Sadly, there's a lot of miserable people I've met, but it was nice to to see this group of people who were on the road, like Billy, Grant, Andy, Simon, and then on the tours in the States, Vaughn was just beautiful. And it all begins and ends with Billy. I caught up with Billy when he came here to Nashville, Tennessee. He's touring with his new band. I've seen at least 50 Billy Bragg gigs throughout the years. And he's out playing with a band. This is the first time I've seen him playing with a rehearsed band. And it was great. It was one of the best Billy shows I've ever seen. But we caught up at a hotel room here in Nashville and sat around and 
And we enjoyed catching up and telling stories, and he was nice enough to let me record this conversation. I'm going to give it to you in two different parts. So here's part one. Here's Billy Bragg. Okay, I heard a rumor. I don't know if it's true. But did you blow off Bob Dylan so that you could go watch football? Only half that is true. I did blow off Bob Dylan, but it wasn't to watch football. It was just because I was afraid to meet him, basically. I um, kind of didn't really even want to go and see him play live. because I was afraid it would spoil my idea of him. because I'm so into him. But um, when we were making Don't Try This at Home, the drummer... Uh, Fred Hood, lovely guy, worked with. It was in a band with Grant, my producer. Was going at the time going out with Chrissy Hind. Prince Charles told me never to drop names, but um, <laughs> he was going out with Chrissy Hind, and she got us tickets to see Dylan. Right, so we go to the Hammersmith Odeon, and she goes backstage to see him beforehand to see Dylan. And she comes back out and says, "You know, we should go backstage afterwards to see Bob." I'm sure he'd love to meet you. And I took from that, I'm sure, that she hadn't said, can I come back with Billy Bragg and meet you, right? So so all through the gig, I had this terrible vision of um, meeting Dylan and saying to, me saying to him, hi, Bob, I really like your records. And I just couldn't bear it. I mean, it's just <laughs> dreadful. And the gig was pretty good, actually. I got a lot from the gig. I, I totally rethought what he's doing. It seemed to me that he was trying to annoy the the Bob Dylan worshippers down the front. He was messing around with their head by singing the songs inside out and upside down. He was doing it just to mess with them. And I kind of really enjoyed it. And I've been to see him subsequently since, and it's been really good. And I and I, I get it now. Um, but, yeah, when the gig ended and, and Chrissy was like, come on, everyone, let's go and see Bob, I literally ran out the door of the Hammersmith Odeon and outside in the street there was a car on fire. It was like, oh, my God, I've just got to get away. And I, I may have said to Grant, you know, I'm going to go and watch the football, but I wasn't. I was fleeing in panic from from the idea of bumping into Bob. It was just <laughs> it was just too much. I just couldn't – I just wasn't prepared for it. So, you know, that's, 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 the, uh, that's the absolute truth. So, you know, and it wouldn't have just been Bob either, you know. It would have been – you know, Van Morrison would have been grumpy in the corner and Ronnie Wood would have been there and, you know, it would have been – George Harrison would have been over in the other corner. I'd have been like, oh, my God, I can't deal with this. <laughs> you know, uh, so, uh, yeah, I fled in fear. And the funny thing is uh, the week we were in Chicago with <clears throat> Wilco, because basically what happened with Mermaid Avenue, the initial thing was for us to meet in Chicago to talk about routine and play the songs to each other and familiarise ourselves with it. But actually, we recorded quite a few songs there. I think we might record California Stars there, maybe All You Fascists Bound to Lose, maybe. <clears throat> Looking at the film, we did. We actually probably recorded maybe as many as a dozen tracks there. Um, certainly one by one they recorded after I'd left and they sent me the track, which is an amazing track, the one that sounds like Nashville Skyline. Um, anyway, um, while we were there, Bob Dylan played the Metro in Chicago, which is a little club. By anyone, I mean, it can't be more than about 500 capacity, maximum seven, seven fifty. Anyway, we managed to get on the guest list. We we went down there. He was really good. I thought he was brilliant. And of course, when the show ended, the band was saying the Wilco's were like, "Go see him. Go get him. Go bring him to the studio. Go. You've got to go. Go in there and get him and tell him to come to the studio." And I'm like, "Listen, guys, it's 
it's tough enough being in there with Woody, all right? Being in there with the little guy and Dylan, that's too much, man. That's going to tip the boat. You know, we put Dylan in the boat. The boat's going to flip. All right, we're already on choppy seas. I mean, this is the very beginning as well, where we didn't know where it was going to, what the outcome was going to be. You know, when we were still sort of feeling our way around it. You know, I'm like, you know, I, I think that might be that might be a legend too many guys. Really, you know. So I managed to I managed to placate them and get them home, and uh, and then two nights later they took a whole night off to go and see Cheap Trick, and I said, well, bring them back. I didn't say that because they would have done. I think we had a we had a night off instead. I think we went out with Corey Harris, if I remember rightly. But yeah, Dylan Dylan looms large in my legend. I don't really want to, and I'm, I'm satisfied that he mentioned this in his in his book. You know, he famously mentions, <laughs> talks about going to find the, Woody is in the hospital and tells him to go to the house um, on Mermaid Avenue and get the lyrics, and and use the lyrics, and he goes there. And uh, Marjorie, Woody's wife, is out, and the babysitter's there with Arlo and Nora and Jody. <clears throat> and the babysitter lets him in and doesn't like the look of him. And so before Mrs. Guthrie comes back, fearing for her job, the babysitter throws him out, and he never sees the lyrics. <clears throat> and he writes in the book, years later, Billy Bragg and Wilco breathe real life into these lyrics. So, you know, my phone was off the hook when the book came out. You know, people ringing me up. Oh my God, Bob Dylan's. You know, I'm like, it's just. I reckon, I think it's as good as a night. The people that listen to this, yeah, would love to hear you tell some Jay Bennett stories. Well, <clears throat> Jay and I really first came across each other during the Mermaid Avenue project, but before that, he'd been in a band which was named after a song of mine, Richard. Uh, it was called uh, Titanic Love Affair which is a line from Richard, which I didn't know he'd done that, you know. But hooking up with him for um, uh, Mermaid Avenue was a real treat because he was the absolute key of the bridge between me and Jeff. I think if he hadn't been there, then it would have been a more difficult way to work, you know, because both me and Jeff have clear ideas about how we want to make records and we'll coach Jeff's band. So <clears throat> the fact that um, two factors really Firstly, Jay's presence and his willingness to work with me and uh, Jeff Tweedy's um, failure to get onto European time, staying on American time while we were in Dublin, meant that during the daytime when Jeff was asleep, the guys were in the studio waiting for me to tell them what to do. They were like my band. And he only had to, he only had to give the ball to Jay and he would run with it. You know, he played some amazing licks on everything. He was just a cat, really. He could play anything. Um, you know, he uh, he had great, great ideas um, with regard to, to uh, everybody's songs, you know. Um, and he always, you know, you, you'd, you'd toss up an idea and then he'd, he'd be, you know, you'd play it through a few times and he'd go off on a different instrument and do something else and, and it would just sound particularly weird, you know, uh, in a way that I, I, I can remember Jeff Tweedy saying to me at the beginning of the project, he just, he just took me aside one day and he said to me, this is going to be weird, isn't it? And I said, yeah, it is going to be weird. We're writing songs with a dead geezer. How more, <laughs> I mean, how more weird is it going to be, mate? You know, we're writing songs with a dead geezer who's incredibly famous and the, the whole world are waiting to see what comes of it. 
that's going to be weird as shit. But I think he meant weird sounding. I think he meant it was going to, you know, I think, you know, because we're talking about <clears throat> Grail Marcus' book, The Invisible Empire, about the basement tapes, which, we, which we'd all read assiduously before we got there, you know. Um, and, you know, the tagline for that was music, something a lot about the old weird America. And, of course, Woody does fit into the old weird America. And some of the songs and things that he was writing about come from the old weird America. So we, we had an opportunity to delve into that, and nobody understood that more than Jay. Jay somehow had a, a feel for the old weird America, but also he had a, a way of running it through a, uh, a, percept, a modern perception, you know, one of the things I loved about the basement tapes is that they play a load of old timey songs. You know, if you know if you know the entire tapes, not just the CBS release, but the whole thing. It's a lot of old music, a lot of Carter family, a lot of um, hymns and stuff. But you know that the guys who are playing those songs have heard Little Richard. You can tell from the way they're playing. You know, there's not a great deal of a what bubaloo, but a what bam boom in the Carter family. You know, it's not AP's fault. You know, he was writing before it was invented. But um, so w we were tasked with, with, I felt, playing these Woody songs in a way that people would understand that we'd heard, for instance, we'd heard The Clash, you know, and that we'd heard um, Tom Waits and we'd heard, you know, everything that had occurred since Woody, the, the songs left Woody's grasp, Woody's grasp became frail and it, and it fell away, you know. So... In those early days, um, Jay's willingness to ramp it up. You know, if you listen to something like Stetson Kennedy, where he plays that grungy guitar, suddenly come, I'm playing these jazz chords around, you know, around the song to give it that sort of bouncy sort of 19... Because it's written in the 40s, I think. Kind of giving that kind of bouncy, jazzy 40s. And he just comes crunching in with this sort of like swordfish trombone shaped guitar that sounds you know it's actually playing in the melody as well it's not destroying it it's just so beautiful and it just lifts the song completely out of my original perception and takes it to another place and that's what jay was capable of doing and he did that for me on my songs you know whenever i let him loose i can't think of one of them where he dropped the ball you know he did some really beautiful things on the at the very end of she came along to me him and uh and bob the pedal steel player playing dueling sly guitars and then if you listen in the fade out they they go right up high like layla like the end of layla and it's just like i you know the grin on my face when because the, they were doing it you know they're both together in the studio playing together live on the overdub and when they did that the grin on my face i never ever listened to that in the car without chasing the fade to hear them do <laughs> do layla so that's you know that's what he was like you know he was and i guess in in that sense he was kind of a moderator as well between me and jeff between my direction and just direction and and we needed that you know it was an absolutely crucial role in there and um you know the time that we spent working together i you know i feel that out al that album stands as a, a tribute to his musicality his talent you know i know his, his other work is greatly respected as well but you know if you wanted to put someone's name on 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 mermaid avenue on the bottom of it, who made this, you know, you'd put, obviously you'd put 
Mark Showbiz there who did the production. And uh, I bet you put Jay there as well for his contribution, which was, you know, just as significant. Whether we, you know, whether we ever felt that way, whether we ever knew that, whether we ever looked upon those sessions and felt as proud as I do of them, I don't know. Because in, in his later years, I didn't really see him much. Uh, we sort of lost contact. Um, things got a bit turbulent after between me and Jeff. Nothing other than just two guys who had strong ideas about how to make a record. You know, people, you'll hear people say that we fell out. But the truth is that when, um, when it came to volume two, there weren't that many Wilco songs. There was loads of Billy Bragg songs. Now, if they really didn't want to do it anymore, they could have easily said, well, just make it a Billy Bragg album. You've got enough songs. But they didn't. They got in touch and said, look, we'd like to go back in the studio and record another five songs. And uh, how do you feel about that? And I said, I think that would be great. And they said, you're welcome to come over. I said, you know, I recorded at least five songs when you guys weren't in the room. I'm sure you can do a fine job without me being there. So they recorded song, you know, tracks like Someday, Some Morning, Sometime, which is an amazing track. And wouldn't have fit, you know, didn't sound like the first album at all and, and made the second album a bit more, I think the first album tilted a bit towards me. Second album tilted a bit towards Wilco. And that was, you know, that was them coming back for more. So if we, you know, if, if, if it was like everyone thinks it is, that we, you know, it was just an awful, awful experience for everyone, there's no way they would have done that. So, you know, it was, it, I'm not saying it wasn't, there wasn't tension, there was tension, but never when we were all in the room together. When we were all, it's only after they went back to Chicago and I went back to London that, that things unraveled a bit. But while we were actually there in the studio, it was a hell of a lot of fun. And uh, those guys, you know, uh, Jeff Tweedy, uh, John Stewart, Ken Coomer, um, and, of course, Jay. You know, I, I think of nothing but fondness of those times we had together. I learned a lot working with them. I've never since been in the studio on my own. You know, the collaboration with Wilco uh, was a huge lesson for me. I learned a huge amount about how to let someone else run with your song, which I'd never really done before. And ever since then, you know, I got to the stage now with the new album where I just did it, everything Joe Henry told me to do. And that's, a, that's a, a change that came about from that time we spent in Chicago and Dublin with the guys from Wilco. Um, and I would do it all over again. Um, it, was, it was a great time. And, and, and Jay sorely missed, you know. I mean, I think had he been around, I'd have been calling him when I was looking for a band to put together to go out on the road. To uh, do this tour with, with Tooth and Nail, he probably would have been one of the first people I'd have run. Did you ever get Marmite in your beard? You actually gave me a uh, jar of Marmite. You were the first one to give me. I'd never even heard of it. No. You had a t shirt that had Marmite That's on right. it. I had a Marmite lo logo, yeah. You asked me if I knew what that logo was, yeah. and I was thinking, man, this is like the stacks record logo <laughs> and i just don't remember it or something i was feel like an, i was feeling like i was really gonna blow yeah, it yeah, yeah. but then you told me that and i tried really hard i brought the marmite home and i because i didn't like it so much by itself but i no. put it in some recipes i oh, made gravy yeah. with it yeah 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 yeah. i yeah. liked how complex it was mm. but i had a hard time finding the right amount for those of you uh, listening not sure what marmite is it's a it's a dark brown paste that is actually Part of the brewing process is what's left on the inside of the copper uh, uh, drums when they make ferment beer. 
It's what's left. It's yeast. It's basically fermented yeast. It's, does, it's not alcoholic at all. It's incredibly savoury, very good for you. Lots of vitamin D in it. And during the Mermaid Avenue sessions, I was in the, um, the non-smoker's house, also known as the wimp's house. It was me in the rhythm section. And uh, we sat one morning and I watched at breakfast Ken Kuma put Marmite on a piece of toast. And it's, I mean, it's very strong, like it was Nutella. And, I know, and we never said anything. There was Maybe Grant was with me. No, it couldn't have been Grant. Maybe it was one of the other guys. We just watched him do this. And we knew, and he took a great big mouthful of it, and we let him do it. I feel really bad. But we just let him. And he was like, ah, what is this? It's an indescribable taste. I can't really, if you've never smelled it or tasted it. But it's one of those things that made the British Empire great. Puts hairs on your chest and other parts of your body that aren't mentionable. Well, when Joe Hill was uh, killed in 1916, his ashes were um, sent to the IWW representatives of each state of the Union and in a little sachet. They split them up. They sent everywhere except Utah. He didn't want to be seen dead in the state of Utah, he famously said, yeah? And... Um, he, uh, his ashes went out and was, were scattered wherever they were sent to, they scattered them, except the FBI in one of the states decided that he was so radical and so dangerous that they impounded his ashes. And it was in a state that begins with I, so it was Idaho or Iowa or Indiana, I can't remember where it was. But in the late 80s, the FBI became a little bit embarrassed about this and fessed up to the fact that they had some of Joe Hill's ashes and asked the IWW what they would like to do with them. They sent them back to the IWW and the, uh, the Daily Worker ran a big story on this. What should we do with Joe's ashes? And the great American radical and yippie, Abby Hoffman, suggested that he said that people like Billy Bragg and Michelle Shock should eat Joe's ashes and when they die, we should eat their ashes. And so the tradition will carry on. And I remember Summer Showman now, and I thought, thanks, Abby. Because oh, I knew Abby Hoffman. You know, he's, <laughs> I'd done st uh, stuff with him in New York, Nicaragua, Solidarity, and, uh, um, you know, uh, anti-discrimination uh, for people with AIDS and stuff like that after he'd, after he'd reappeared after the, in, the, in the late 80s. I thought, thanks, buddy. That's great. Anyway, Abby subsequently died. He passed away. And one time in the... Early 90s, we were playing in Chicago after the show, and these kind of guys turned up looking a bit sheepish. So, can we have a word? And they said, Hi, we're, look, we're from the, the headquarters are in Chicago, I think, isn't it? IWW, yeah, we're from Daily Worker. And I don't know if you ever read Ab what Abby Hoffman said about Joe's ashes. And I'm like, uh, Yeah, I do. And, they, and then they got this little white packet out. I said, Well, now Abby's gone. We figured that, you know, tribute to him, maybe you should do that. And I'm like, you are kidding me. You are kidding me. They are, that's, they're like, yeah. And they got, they got them out in a little, they're all in little bits, little chunks. And uh, I said, look, we're going to take, we're going to eat some now just so you know, we're going to eat a bit. So you know we're not joking you. This is the real stuff. So they ordered a particular uh, brand of beer that was union beer, union-made beer, local union-made beer. 
and we each of us partook, including Vaughan, my sound man, uh, my uh, uh, tour manager. He also joined in, and we all had a little bit of Joe's ashes washed down with this Union beer. And they said, well, you, you know, we're going to give you a tiny bit as well for Michelle because uh, Abby had said that Michelle Shock should eat some as well. So I thought, okay, that's fair enough. So they gave me a little sachet. They gave me a tiny, another tiny little uh, piece of Joe's, Joe Hill's ashes, which I put into a, a 1935 copy of the Little Red Songbook that I picked up in a bookstore somewhere for safekeeping in my house. And over the years, I didn't bump into Michelle, and she kind of became a born-again Christian. And I started thinking to myself, you know, I wonder what I should, you know, you know I'm not going to lay, lay this trip on her. Anyway, and the chance of me seeing her with the ashes on me were getting slimmer and slimmer. So one day, you were at my house. It might have been the day we'd been to see the Cern Abbas giant even. And I suddenly thought to myself, you know what? I found the person who should partake of Joe. That you know, if there's anyone I know who deserves to carry that tradition on, it was yourself. And so I was able to um, fulfil my promise to the IWW and to Abby and to Joe by passing it on to someone who carries that same torch. And so you and I have both partaken. <laughs> and I have that little red songbook is sitting on my bookshelf in my living room. Yeah. I, I have to be honest. I, um, I have a lot of mixed feelings about it. It's, it's like I feel honored, but I also feel like um, there are so many people that I can think of that deserve that more than myself. But uh, sometimes you're the guy in the room and sometimes fate puts you in a situation. And uh, Where did we meet, Otis? We met in a homeless shelter in Austin, Texas. What were we doing there? We were playing. I didn't know that you would be there, for one. I didn't know I was you would be if, there. I didn't know that you would be there. <laughs> I was asked if I would come and play for the folks there at the homeless shelter so they could enjoy. It was during South by Southwest. And... Um, you know, I, I said yes and thought it was the right thing to do, so I went and did that, and then you were there, and you were really, really nice to me. We enjoyed each other's company, we did. and you asked me immediately if uh, if I would go tour with you, which I thought you were being nice. And I said, well, that'd be great, and it was nice that you said that, but I didn't expect it to happen. But then I ended up doing a couple tours with you, yeah. a few tours, actually. And uh, For me, it it's, you know, I feel that, you know, you and I are in, involved in the same tradition that Joe Hill was involved in, that Woody was involved in. Um, and I'm afraid the things that Michelle Shock said in San Francisco recently only served to make me feel I did the right thing. I didn't let anybody down. I made the right call. So, you know, I don't think you should feel anything other than really strange that you ate Joe Hill's ashes, because it is a pretty strange thing. To I can understand why you've never told anybody. <laughs> It is a, it's a strange thing to have done. And it, it, it brings, it has its responsibilities, it has certain responsibilities that we take having done it, but uh, binds us together more into the tradition, you know. I appreciate you uh, sitting down and chatting with me. It's great to have you in Nashville, man. It's great to be here in Nashville. It's great to be able to sit down and uh, shoot the breeze. 
I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Billy for meeting up with me at a hotel room in Nashville, Tennessee. And you can find out everything you need to know about Billy at billybragg.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you can buy one of Amy's children's books, but anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. It'll help us move up in the search rankings and it'll help a lot more people find out about this show. And while you're there, hit the subscribe button and you'll get a brand new episode every Wednesday for free. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And you guys have been doing a great job with that. The audience is just growing way faster than I ever could have hoped, so thank you very much. But if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send an email to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.